Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome, everyone, to Arc's podcast, FYI. Today, uh, I'm joined by uh, Steve Vinelli. He is the founder, CEO, CIO of Knowledge Leaders Capital. Uh, my name is Ren Leggi. I'm Arc's client portfolio manager, uh, and we have uh, a lot to cover today. Thank you for joining, Steve. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So uh, maybe we'll just start off with uh, a little background. So as client portfolio manager, I've been with ARC for a little over four years. I've been working alongside Kathy Wood. Uh, the number one question I'm getting, you know, have we, has innovation hit the bottom uh, with growth, uh, underperforming value? Seems like you're starting to see some signals like us uh, that we may have hit the bottom uh, and that um, we could start to see a, a turning point. But before we kind of dive into that, let's uh, would love to hear a little bit about your background, kind of why you started the firm uh, and, and what you all offer. Sure. We're based in Denver, Colorado, and our unique intellectual property is dealing with intangible assets. And we've developed a proprietary method of incorporating uh, intangible investments that corporations make into their financial statements. And we've developed a proprietary process where we, in effect, capitalize research and development expenditures, treat them the same way that a company would treat CapEx, run it through the statement of cash flows, put an asset on the balance sheet, flow a non-cash charge, an amortization charge through the income statement reflective of that consumption of fixed capital, and then evaluate uh, company f uh, fundamentals and valuations on the basis of um, giving companies credit for uh, for their innovation activities. So we're not trying to, you know, let's say put a value on the brand of Coke. What we're trying to do is capture the investments, the capital accumulation that companies are uh, the, the companies are endeavoring. And for us, really, whether a company spends money externally buys CapEx from somebody else or spends money internally, runs a research lab, there's really no difference. I mean, it's it's both investment. If you're foregoing current consumption for future uh, for future benefits, that's an investment. And so the crux of what we do really um, came out, uh, began in 2003 when the Bureau of Economic Analysis and the National Science Foundation started a collaboration creating a satellite account, the GDP account, uh, ostensibly designed to capture research and development. Uh, prior to that, it was an intermediate expense. And so they wanted to put it into the C plus I plus G plus NetX framework that is GDP. And so in doing so, they had to come up with a lot of variables, the useful life of intellectual property, different forms of intellectual property, kind of a, a an amortization schedule, residual value. Uh, and they did all that kind of stuff. And then they blended it into the national income and product accounts and 
2014, I believe. And, and since then, several other countries have done the same thing. And so what we really did was take the work that came out of that, that project, that collaboration with the BEA and the NSF and bring it down to a company level. Um, our purpose isn't necessarily trying to get national income and product accounts more correct than they, than they may be right now. Our purpose is trying to capture corporate fundamentals uh, more correctly than they are right now. And there was a great piece put out a week or two ago by um, the well-known Michael Mabusin um, from, from Morgan Stanley called Return on Invested Capital. And it's a long piece, lots of math, really good stuff. But one of the issues he takes on is uh, the idea of intangible capital and how that impacts not only the, the numerator, you know, your flow, but also the denominator, the amount of capital that you have. And unless you make an adjustment to the flow and to the level, you don't come up with a correct number for return on invested capital. And so while he you know, admitted that it's a lot of work calculating these numbers, and we can attest to the fact that it is a lot of work calculating these numbers, uh, we just did our rebalance and we have, we have intangible adjusted data on about 10,000 companies around the world. And we've just uh, finished coding it all out in Python to, to do our, our processes. And the, the code to, to get through all that's about 9,000 lines in Python. So it's a pretty extensive data project to capture all that stuff. But that's, that's our unique um, special sauce, if you will, of, of how we look at the world. And so when you touched on factors, you know, we don't really look at um, innovation, you know, as a factor, quote unquote, um, like you would, you know, cap size or dividend yield or things like that. It can take many forms. And so what I found interesting lately was that Bloomberg in their factors to watch function, if, if anybody's a Bloomberg user, created a new factor in the investment category called um, R&D as a percent of sales. And so they do like um, like other folks do when they try to isolate factors. They calculate the performance of going long the top quintile of companies contained in the basket and short the bottom quintile of companies um, in that basket. And so we can look at it for a variety of different um, benchmarks, and they pretty much kind of say the same thing, whether it's in the United States across cap size or internationally. Um, so, you know, I looked at, uh, because I don't know, you know, what indexes everybody may have access to, I, I, I kind of crunched the numbers on a few of them, but the Bloomberg 500, which is the 500 large cap companies that, that Bloomberg uh, captures in their index, you know, that Q spread uh, peaked in February 14th of 2021, and it just troughed in May 11th of 2022. So that's a 15 month long uh, bear market down 65%. And again, that's, that's the, the quintile spread uh, down 65% over 15 months. And, and so you're up about 5% from the low, but to your earlier point, Ren, um, that was a 15 month bear market. And, and that bear market's been in, been in place for a long time. Same idea when we look at the Bloomberg 1000, which just brings in the next 500 companies. You know, that peaked in uh, February 14th of 21. It troughed uh, again, May 11th of, of 22. That was 15 months. And here it was an 85% drop in the quintile spread. So it means that the highest quintile of, of uh, most R&D as a percent of sales companies underperform significantly the bottom quintile uh, companies that you know largely do no R and D as a percent of sales of energy companies, let's say for instance, and so you know that was that was a fifteen month bear market as well. 
Um, we can get into some indexes that folks are more used to looking at. The Russell 2000, you know, that peaked on July 8th of 2000. It fell 120%, the quintile spread, into the 526-22 low. That's 23 months long, 23-month bear market that, that the Russell 2000 um, innovation companies experienced. And you're about 6% off the low. Getting into the S&P 500, a little more mainstream, it peaked on uh, July 8th of 2000, fell 30% into um, uh, 91522, uh, September 15th, 22, uh, which was the low. Interestingly, that was the week before the Fed really launched the last uh, 75 basis point rate hike and guided expectations you know, significantly higher towards the end of the year and, and into the terminal rate. Nevertheless, um, the highest quintile of, of R&D stocks, those that are you know, normally thought of the longest duration stocks out there, have not underperformed um, since that time. That was a 22-month bear market as well. The S&P 600 peaked on April 2nd of 2020. Uh, it made a trough on uh, July. I'm sorry, June 13th, the day of the market low in, back in June. And it's up about 4% from the lows. So that's about a 26-month bear market for the S&P uh, 600. So, you know, pr pretty good duration bear markets, pretty good duration declines. And then when we look, um, when we look overseas, uh, I did it for the Nikkei 225. Obviously, it's fewer companies in the S&P 500. But, you know, its quintile spread peaked on July 30th of 2020. Um, it fell. It's fallen 30 percent um, into the trough on October the 12th. So a couple weeks ago. Um, October the 12th of 22, and it's up a couple percent from the low. That was a 21% bear market uh, for, for the most innovative quintile of stocks in, in Japan. Uh, and then lastly, um, in this through this lens, we can look at Western Europe, and the Bloomberg Western Europe um, index peaked uh, October 14th of 2020, uh, has underperformed or fallen by 25% relative to the lowest quintile, made a trough on 5-12, May 12th of 2022, and it's up about 7% from that period of time. So interestingly, you know, what we see is that um, Western European um, highly innovative companies have actually um, had the strongest bounce back, one of the earlier lows, but one of the strongest bounce backs from that low. And I think in part, that's probably explained by the composition, where it's a little more healthcare tilted, a little less technology tilted. But nevertheless, that was a 19-month uh, long bear market um, for, for Western Europe. Yeah, you, you touched on a, a lot there. Uh, so I want to unpack some of that. Uh, and going all the way back, um, you touched on intangible assets. So for, for the, the non-accountant uh, listeners we have, could you just define what that means and maybe give a few examples of, you know, for innovative companies, what are those intangible assets? How big, maybe a few company examples, you know, how, what, what, what are we talking? Like how, how big are these intangible assets that it feels like, People aren't really thinking about, um, you know, certainly in the spare market, they're just doing it's just mostly indiscriminate selling risk off assets. Uh, and they're not really paying too much attention to uh, these these intangible assets that, you know, from Arc's view, uh, when we look across our technology platforms, especially artificial intelligence, all the way through genomics, you know, blockchain, uh, these can be very valuable, especially the underlying data that these companies are accruing. Uh, because more data, more, um, you know, better you can um, create these these uh, neural net algorithms. And so uh, that should be valued somewhere. A lot of these companies aren't even really um, 
you know, valiant or, or having it on their, their balance sheets. Yeah, those, those those that organically generate it don't. Of course, those that buy it um, via acquisition end up with an intangible on their balance sheet called goodwill. So there's an even further asymmetry of how innovation is accounted for. If you build it, you get penalized. If you buy it, you get preferential treatment, so to speak. Um, there's several, you know, major genres of, of intangibles that, that we think of. Um, one is scientific R&D. Two, non-scientific R&D. So the creation of, you know, artistic works, things of that nature. And then there's things that are kind of outside the realm of, of R&D, brand development, uh, employee training, creation of uh, uh, databases and codified customer information. So um, it isn't all necessarily like hardcore, you know, ones and zeros, bits and bytes. Um, a lot of it is uh, investments that companies make into their people or make into their processes and make into their manufacturing processes. It's funny, I'm reading the book um, uh, Chip Wars, which you know is very timely given what's going on with the Biden administration and and uh, uh, new rules put in place with China. And, you know, one of the one of the struggles the early semiconductor industry had in the in, in the 50s and 60s at, you know, at, at Fairchild or Semi or um, uh, or, or um, uh, Intel was yields and yields were very, very low. And so, you know, I mean, on the order of close to zero percent. And so what it, it what occurred pretty quickly was it was a precision manufacturing operation and that a lot of R&D and intellectual property, you know, went into not just designing the semiconductors, but designing the processes and the workflows and the machines that led to higher yields. Because at the end of the day, if your yields are close to zero, you're just making a bunch of trash off the end of your assembly line. And so um, these things kind of get bundled together. But, you know, when you have develop the capacity to produce a differentiated high-end good or service, you kind of need the ability to execute on, on doing that. And there's a suite of intangibles that, that go along with that. Some of them captured in R&D, some of them not necessarily captured in R&D. And, and that's another difficult challenge for companies that we had to, uh, to deal with is that there's other intangible spending that goes on outside of R&D for companies. Again, some of the, some of the ones I talked about uh, prior. So, you know, the aggregate amount spent on intangibles is much more than simply that spent on uh, scientific and non-scientific R&D. That might be a conversation for another day, but I, I, I thought it would just be good for the listener to understand that, you know, R&D in our work represents about 40% of total, total intangible spending. So it's significant, but it, it's, it's not the whole enchilada. Yes. So what, what, what are some of the examples, um, you know, of that other 60%? Well, again, you know, they, they, they really kind of vary across industry from, you know, brand development to employee training to all sorts of things, improving manufacturing, uh, sustainability initiatives, um, energy transition initiatives. I mean, there, there really is no kind of one size fits all, if you will. But I will put a number to it. You know, if you pull up uh, kind of a reported financial statement, reported balance sheet for Intel, you see about 100 billion in assets. When we look at our um, intangible adjusted financial statements, we see about 140 billion in assets. So what we see is about 40 billion more in assets, which is reflective of there's some history of um, intellectual property investments carried at depreciated historic cost on their balance sheet. So again, not an exercise in valuing you know the brand or the manufacturing prowess. Just simply an exercise in measuring the amount of money that they spent invested in in this area over time. And so the way we think about it is that the more IP that you can see in the present, 
it has a relationship to earnings in the future, right? I mean, the bigger the tree that you see, you kind of say, well, the bigger pieces of fruit I would expect to come off of that thing. And so, you know, we look at it like that, that the, the, the present value of that R&D, present value of all those intangible assets equals the discounted future cash flows that will be produced by that by that capital good, right? So, you know, if you're running a restaurant and you're considering buying an oven, you think about, well, you know, the oven is worth the sum of the future discounted meals that I can produce in it. Now, capital goods kind of work the same way. So R&D projects kind of work the same way. So, you know, when we see more assets in the present, it means to us there are more earnings or more hidden earnings out there in the future that are drivers of the company's uh, profitability. But in today's market, it doesn't seem that, you know, the market doesn't care about those future earnings. They want earnings now, right? Because we're entering potentially, you know, people, we think we're in a recession. Others think it's right around the corner, um, early stages. Uh, but, you know, the market markets wants kind of strong earnings, right? And, and for those that are promising them at, you know, two, three years out, that's not, that's not good enough. Yeah, I think that's a fair point, but I think that's also why, in anticipation of this rate cycle, why innovation has corrected so heavily and for so long. Um, and I think that, you know, I have some numbers that I could throw out there that would suggest to me that, uh, suggest to us that you've gotten down to a point now where highly innovative companies on a like-for-like -like basis compared to their, you know, non-innovative peers are not just relatively cheap, but are in an absolute sense um, going for pretty cheap pretty cheap multiples, um, the, w the way we look at it. So, you know, I could start with, um, say, that, that, that first quintile of the S&P 500 that, that we began the conversation with about the quintile spread. So if you divide up the, uh, uh, the if you look at the, the first quintile of the R&D, you got to take out energy and utility companies. So you're not looking perfectly at 100 companies. It's actually 83 companies. And for a quality check, um, 11 of these companies have um, have no adjusted net income and three have no adjusted cash flow. So, you know, not many, pretty, pretty high quality uh, uh, group of companies. But in aggregate, on a reported basis, uh, those 83 companies did about $292 billion in, in R&D. They have an aggregate market cap of about uh, $6.5 trillion and net income on a reported basis of $222 billion in cash flow on a reported basis of 368 billion. Well, when we add back R&D to that as a shorthand to, to our process, uh, just to clean it up off the income statement, you know, what we get is going from 222 billion in reported net income to 514 billion in adjusted net income, going from 368 billion in reported operating cash flow to 660 in adjusted operating cash flow. And so why that's important is that when we look at aggregate variables, so if we look at the reported side, if I just simply take the 6.5 trillion divided by the net income of 222 billion, I get a, and these are all tra trailing 12 month figures, okay? So none of this is forward looking. These aren't forward estimates, these are trailing 12 months. I get a PE ratio of 29.42 and a price to cash flow ratio of 1779. When I look at it on my adjusted basis, when I add R&D back to, net income and uh, to operating cash flow, I get a PE of 12.74 and a price to cash flow of 9.93. So those are respectively a 56 and a 44% discount to the reported valuation metrics. And so, you know, I think the thing to take away here is, yes, investors seem to have a preference right now for shorter duration, uh, uh, shorter duration stocks, 
But we've gotten to a point after two years of getting so so oversold, uh, the innovation space is actually cheaper in many ways than the non-innovation space. If I look at the, I take the I can take the uh, S and P five hundred and divide it into two groups of companies: those that spend money on R and D and those that don't spend any money on R and D. Um, interestingly, out of the five hundred companies in the S and P five hundred, one hundred and eight uh, excuse me, one hundred and sixty one spend a dollar on R and D. 339 companies spend nothing on R&D in the S&P 500, okay? So those 161 companies in the S&P 500, trailing 12 months, spent uh, $478 billion in R&D, okay? That's half a trillion dollars that's kind of up for grabs here, a jump ball when you think about which accounting methodology do you want to subscribe to. Half a trillion dollars really moves the needle when you start thinking about PEs and, and valuations for the market, so for the R&D spenders, they had a reported net income in aggregate of $785 trillion and reported cash flow of about $1.1 trillion. When we add back uh, R&D, we have an adjusted net income of $1.264 trillion and an adjusted operating cash flow of $1.55 trillion. So when I aggregate those valuations for the R&D spenders, the aggregate PE is about uh, 23.27 times on a reported basis, but it drops to 14.46 on an adjusted basis. The reported price to cash flow is 16.96 on a reported basis. Again, not making the adjustment drops to 11.7, uh, 11.75 when we incorporate uh, those intangibles. Interestingly, when we look at the 339 companies that are non R&D spenders, obviously they do R&D of zero. They're adjusted, since there is no adjustment to make, their adjusted net income is $1.01 trillion. So for the 339 companies that don't spend R&D, their adjusted net income is $1.01 trillion, while the 161 companies that do R&D, their adjusted net income is $1.264 trillion. So 161 out-earn the other 339 by a couple hundred billion dollars. Cash flow uh, is a little closer. Uh, the non-R&D spenders clock in about $1.4 trillion in, in adjusted cash flow. R&D spenders alone, $1.55, again, trillion in, in operating cash flow. So when we look back over the last 12 months and, and do valuations, the aggregate PE for the non-spenders, 41 times. Aggregate cash flow for the non-spenders, 29.86 times. And there's no adjustments to make there because they don't do any R&D spending. So when we focus in on... You know, 161 out of 500 companies, that's what, 32%. So only a third of the S&P does any R&D at all. And these are the companies where there's roughly 500 billion in debatable expenses, investment, all, all, all that kind of stuff up for grabs. And as you can see from the numbers that I, that I, that I just went through, huge impact on valuations when, depending on, you know, which mental switch you have, have on the non-R&D spending mental switch or the R&D intangible invest, investment switch flipped in your head. And are these um, R&D spenders, are they concentrated in the, the obvious kind of sectors like healthcare and maybe technology? Yeah, they are. Um, for the S&P 500, uh, I'll do the quintiles. So for the, for the first quintile of, of the S&P 500, it's about 51% tech and about 24% healthcare. But that changes when you get down into um, some other companies around the world. So when I look at Western Europe, you know, Western Europe's 43% healthcare. 
So that also helps explain why Western Europe has bottomed and done a little bit better over the over the last handful of months. Greater concentration in innovative healthcare companies um, rather than technology necessarily. Um, that quintile in Europe is only about twenty, only nineteen percent technology. Uh, and then in in Japan, same idea. You know, about thirty percent uh, of that first quintile is is healthcare. Uh, about thirty five percent is is technology. So for most of these indexes. 70%, 60%, 70% of the index of these top quintile R&D spenders, technology and healthcare. And is it fair to say, um, you know, many of these, most of these unprofitable companies, right, uh, would be technically profitable if you were to capitalize uh, the R&D like, like what you're doing, right? Some would, some wouldn't, um, you know, in the, when you get down into the small caps. So when I look at the Bloomberg 1000 group of companies, there's about 43 companies there that don't have adjusted net income, you know, 43 out of a thousand. I mean, you're still not talking, you're still talking 4% of the index and only eight had no adjusted um, operating cash flow. So a rather de minimis amount. What I found interesting though, going around the world was that um, in Western Europe, um, out of 70 companies, you only had one with no adjusted net income or operating cash flow or negative, I should say, operating adjusted cash flow. And in Japan, zero. So while the numbers may be a little bit smaller on the amount of R&D that, you know, the companies in Western Europe and Japan do, the valuations are also lighter. I mean, you know, the adjusted price to cash flow on that Q1 first quintile of the, um, of the Nikkei 225 goes for about eight and a half times cash flow right now. And that, uh, Price to cash flow on the first quintile of Western Europe is about six times adjusted cash flow. So, I mean, even though the U.S. is cheap at you know around ten times adjusted cash flow, just a little under ten. I mean, you're talking um, you know Europe at six and Japan at eight. So, you know, there definitely are um, some outright cheap pockets of not just the U.S. but global stock markets. I would argue that are on offer out there. Yeah, and I think uh, you know the all the companies you're saying that aren't spending uh, R and D. You know, we've been saying about fifty percent of the S and P five hundred is ripe and vulnerable to disruption. And if you're not spending in R and D, you know, and and you have these new technologies coming to to market and disrupting, you know, entire industries and potential sectors, uh, that's a bit concerning. If I have a few dollars in the Twelve or thirteen trillion dollars linked to the S and P five hundred index, where a lot of you know a lot of wealth is is sitting. It'd be interesting if they created a uh, kind of a, a spy A and a spy B. A spy A being the S and P five hundred that does R and D, and spy B being an S and P five hundred index that doesn't do any R and D. I would go out on a limb and say spy A has outperformed spy B pretty significantly over the last decade. When you look at indices, you mentioned the Bloomberg R&D Leaders Index. Uh, any others that you use as kind of a proxy for, for innovation? I know it's you know a little more challenging because it's you know index by definition is, is backward looking. Um, so you may not be able to capture necessarily kind of the, the future innovative companies. They may be because of you know, trading liquidity or, or size factors. But uh, what, what do you use yeah, and, and how far back does it go? Because that's also important. So part, part of what we do as a firm is create our own proprietary um, indexes that drive our investment process. So we have a knowledge leaders developed world index. Uh, we have a knowledge leaders 
U.S. mid-large cap index, a knowledge leader international, developed international only index, and a knowledge leader small cap only index. All of these are available in investment products. I want to stay away from the compliance line there. But they all um, they all bottomed kind of in the May or June timeframe. Um, uh, the knowledge leaders Europe benchmark uh, relative to the S&P 500 bottomed in early June. The U.S. small cap bottomed in mid-May. The North America knowledge leaders uh, index bottomed in mid-May and the Asia bottomed in April. So again, we're, we're talking you know, months since, since these indexes have bottomed. So those are our flavor of indexes that we create incorporating our proprietary data. Um, the, the, the second way I would answer your question is to say that, you know, I guess there's different flavors of innovation. I mean, just like there's different flavors of anything. I mean, there's kind of the higher quality flavor of innovation where there is profits and profitability and all that kind of stuff that we like. And then there, you know, clearly are the more speculative areas of, of the innovation spectrum. And, and for this, I would kind of, you know, use two variables to compare. I'd compare the, the Bloomberg R&D Leaders Index with the Goldman Sachs Unprofitable Tech Index. Now, in all fairness, I don't have, uh, I don't have access to the Goldman Sachs um, Unprofitable Tech Index constituents, so I couldn't do some of the earlier um, work that I did on it before. But what's interesting, when you look at the Goldman Sachs Unprofitable Tech Index, it peaked February 11th, 2001, just around 500 index level. And it, it troughed uh, about a week ago at, at about 120. So you're down almost 80% over the last couple of years in, in the Goldman Sachs Unprofitable Tech. In the BRND, which is the Bloomberg R&D Index, it peaked on December 7th uh, of last year, and it's fallen uh, 39% uh, and made a low uh, again the other day, October 14th. So, you know, the Bloomberg R&D Index would probably be representative of more than just technology, I guess, to be fair, but also representative of, you know, for the most part, I think there was only 11 companies in the Bloomberg R&D Index um, out of 134 companies that didn't have adjusted net income. So, you know, there's a few, but it's still pretty high quality. I mean, you're still even only pushing 10% of the index with without adjusted fundamentals in what's designed to be a highly innovative, you know, only index. And the Bloomberg R&D index, while, while the S&P 500 has a free cash flow, you know, of around five and a half percent, it's not that far behind the Bloomberg R&D index. It's like 3.7, 3.8%. So, you know, free cash flow, it all kind of, it all comes together, irrespective of, you know, how you either expense or capitalize R&D, it all comes together at free cash flow. So, you know, if these companies were a bunch of low quality companies, no earnings, no cash flow, no nothing, well, that would still show up as no free cash flow. And so the fact that they're free cash flowing, you know, a percent, percent and a half below uh, the, the aggregate S&P 500 means that you're just dealing with fundamentally a higher quality group of companies. I mean, this isn't, you know, 2000 anymore where, you know, you had lists and lists of not just unprofitable, but like, you know, no sales, no, you know, no, no fundamentals whatsoever to look at. And we invented, you know, price to clicks and, and all sorts of, you know, 2000 era valuation metrics. That's not that's not where technology is today. I mean, yes, there are a few companies that are kind of out there in the stratosphere, but appropriately viewed this isn't this isn't 2000 again i mean my goodness in in 2000 i remember the company i was working at then you know selling cisco in the first quarter of of uh of 2000 when it was in the 80s like 120 times earnings the the, the high quality companies now that, that you see nowadays just aren't there i mean you know when i look at like um 
and Amazon, right? In our proprietary work, Amazon goes for nine times adjusted cash flow right now. I mean, that's just not cheap relatively. That's that's cheap absolutely. So that, that that's really more what we're seeing here is that uh, appropriately viewed innovation has gotten down cheap enough where it's not just relatively cheaper to, you know, old economy energy or, you know, whatever. It, it, it's absolutely cheap and, and it's at an absolute um, attractive valuation level in, in, in our opinion. You touched on two things that I want to go back to um, in terms of uh, financial stability, uh, quality, right? I mean, it feels like innovative companies uh, have been priced as if they're going out of business next month, right? Can you talk about kind of whether you want to use the, the Bloomberg R&D leaders uh, or, or another index versus, say, a broader broader in, index like the S&P 500? You know, what, what does the financial leverage look like? Um, you know, even gross margin. I mean, what, what are some of the financial stats that you can compare? I think there's a few uh, of interest to, to investors, you know, um, and I, I will, I'll take you up on that. I'll use the Bloomberg R&D Leaders Index, and I will compare it to the S&P 500 um, in general. And here I'm looking out over the last 15 years, and I'm using reported data, not intangible adjusted data, just straight up reported data, which would penalize more heavily those uh, innovative companies since all of R&D comes out in the current period, right? In theory, you know, an income statement should be reflective of the income generated from the previous vintage of capital goods. So if you acquire capital good in T, T plus one would be your income statement where you utilize those capital goods, right? And so not only do we have an issue with counting an investment as an expense, we have intertemporal issues insofar as that you're measuring the current vintage of capital accumulation against current period profits, which again is just an intertemporal mistake. But anyway, for another day. So the Bloomberg R&D Leaders Index over the last 15 years has grown its earnings at a compound rate, 12.0%, while the S&P 500 has grown at about 6.73% compound over the last 15 years. So almost twice as fast, a little bit less than twice as fast. Um, on a cash flow basis, it's grown cash flow at 12.06% over the last 15 years. The S&P 500 has grown it at 6.3. So again, just a little bit less than twice as much. The Bloomberg R&D Leaders Index has a, uh, a gross margin of 58%. The S&P 500 in general has a gross margin of 35%. The Bloomberg R&D Leaders Index has a net profit margin of 17%. The S&P 500, it's just a little bit under 12 when we do kind of a DuPont style analysis breakdown to arrive at uh, ROE, you know, we're really focused on finding companies where ROA is the driver, return on assets is the driver, rather than financial leverage or, or, uh, or, or manipulation. So the Bloomberg R&D Leaders Index has an ROA, return on assets, 10.55 percent. While the, while the S&P 500 is 3.9%. Uh, so you don't really lead, need to lever 10.55 very much to get a really attractive ROE. Speaking of which, the ROE on the R&D leaders, 32.5%. S&P in general, 22%. Um, and then from a, a balance sheet standpoint, I think this is interesting as well because innovation tends not to be debt funded. It tends to be equity funded. Um, for the R&D leaders index, total debt to equity, 58%. S&P in general, total debt to equity, 115%. Um, so significantly more leveraged. So in that highly innovative, you know, 
index represented by Bloomberg R&D index. I mean, you get companies growing twice as fast on average with, you know, a third as much, half as much, a third as much um, leverage, uh, profitability metrics, 50% higher and then some and cheaper valuations. So, you know, really kind of across the board from a fundamental uh, fundamental standpoint, really for us, the, the sun, the moon and the stars are all kind of lining up in the direction of, you know, focusing our time and attention on um that innovative area that, you know, just like it led, led the market down, I kind of think it's going to lead the market out. Yep. So last question on that note, uh, you know, a lot of people compare, they overlay the NASDAQ chart uh, of the 2000s, you know, tech and telecom bust, boom and bust uh, with innovation. Uh, they, you know, they, they've used uh, our strategy, our arc disrupted innovation strategy as a proxy. I'm sure they've used, you know, some of these other indices, innovation indices, uh, and it looks like it tr- it's tracking almost exactly the last 18 months of that, that drawdown that we experienced back in 2000 uh, and that the recovery took 15 years. Why do you think this is different? Do you think it's going to be much quicker? What, what's kind of your take of what you're seeing uh, out there you know, from a, from a quant perspective? I don't have that picture in my head, unfortunately, of the unprofitable tech index overlaid on the NASDAQ. Um, I do. I mean, I was in the business and obviously do remember you know, the sell-off from what, March 12th or 14th, something like that, 2000, where they didn't ring the bell and stocks going down. And then, you know, the multi-part sell-off after after 9-11, you know, kind of a low into July. The real emotional low was into October. And then you made the uh, the emotional and price low was October. Then you tested it uh, in March of 03, and, and that was it. Again, I, I just think different time, different place in terms of, Technology companies were less well-developed then. Um, they were less profitable then. I mean, you remember the the thrust of the 90s tech boom was really kind of like the internet build-out, um, all the debt that companies like, you know, Global Crossing, Adelphia, I mean, names that no longer exist anymore, that all went bankrupt. Um, you remember the investment banker, Jack Grubman, that ran around helping these companies raise all this money. So, I mean, it got, it, it got kind of, I don't know, feverish, right? And then after long-term capital, you know, fell in, in the fall of 98, the Fed turned around and, and started easing again. And then in anticipation of Y2K in the fourth quarter of 99, if I remember right, tech stocks were up like 40% because the Fed threw so much money in uh, to the system in anticipation of Y2K. Um, so that took valuations up. I mean, you know, it took things like Yahoo from like, you know, one to 150 in, in the span of like 18 months. So I just think there was a lot more um, new, unproven um, ideas. Um, you know, I mean, you guys have done so much work on things like, you know, autonomous uh, 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 EVs and stuff like that. I mean, that, that's not that's not, you know, brand new stuff anymore. People have heard of it. They've learned about it, you know, in part because of all the great work that you all have done. And I just think that the, the, the tech sector in, in a lot of places is just not the same tech sector that it was. 20 years ago. Um, margins are structurally higher. Um, the entrenched position, the moats that a lot of these companies ha- have are, are significantly greater. They're 20 years down the road, uh, 20, 20 years down the road in terms of productivity. You know, so if you say productivity for these companies was compounding a couple, 3%, right? I mean, you've like, you know, had a doubling of productivity of these companies. Um, and you've also had in, in 20 years, the doubling in the processing power of the semiconductor, you know, about 12 or 14 doublings in the power of the semiconductor. And the semiconductor really is the general purpose technology of our current age. And so 
I think that, you know, companies are able to do more now with that greater computing power. And, you know, the semiconductor helps companies try on new ideas or try new recipes, so to speak, right? They can synthesize or simulate the outcome of a given process or a given chemical interaction or a chemical compound or, you know, a semiconductor architecture or whatever. Um, you can do so much more of that um, without having to physically go to go to market, go to shop and see that your product failed or, or didn't work or didn't work as promised. And so I just think the technology industry in most places is just is far different than it was before. Um, on the downside, if I could, you know, balance that a little bit is I don't know entirely what the ultimate ramifications are of the U.S.'s policy of kind of getting after some crucial technologies um, for, for, for China, going after the, uh, the high-end chip makers, NVIDIA, um, Qualcomm, going after the high-end chip equipment companies, LAM, Applied Materials, going after the you know elect electronic design automation software companies, Cadence and Synopsys. I mean, they're really trying to kneecap China's access to, to technology. And from what I understand, you basically had 45 executives at U.S. tech companies that were working in China, servicing their Chinese customers that all quit last weekend, <laughs> like 10 days ago or nine days ago. They all quit because Biden gave them the choice. You know, you can either maintain your U.S. citizenship and continue doing this or you can stop doing this. And so, you know, I don't I don't we see the China tech down today, Hong Kong tech down today. <sighs> Hard to know, you know, how that's related. Um, but just like that book that I alluded to at the beginning, Chip Wars, you know, is really kind of bringing semiconductors and the manufacture of semiconductors, which really are the crux of our modern society, into the fold. There's a great book that came out a handful of years ago called Splinternet, all about how the internet was going to divide kind of along the same lines, a, more of a Western kind of style internet and then more of a, you know, censored kind of Asian China style internet. And so, you know, it's very clear that you're seeing kind of a, a rift in in the technologies between these countries. And I suppose it's for good reason. I mean, the Biden administration suggested that it was because of all the commercial, industrial, military overlap that that these high end chips were finding their way into, you know, military technologies that the U.S. didn't want them to find their way into in in, in China. Hard to know. And it's also hard to know, you know, going forward, what that's going to mean for kind of the relationship, the trade relationship. Uh, you know, Asia, China produces so much of the technology goods that, that that we use. Now, they're not developed there necessarily. And we just passed the CHIPS Act here, which, you know, is going to dole out $50 billion to build semiconductor plants. So, you know, maybe maybe it goes on without a hitch. And it's just China a little bit worse for the wear, China's military a little bit worse for the wear. But Probably a conversation for, you know, your next podcast with like a geopolitical strategist that they might be able to speak to that. But that that would be my one kind of, you know, hanging curveball out there, you know, if, if I could, um, uh, that, that would concern me about um, some of these technology companies. Yeah, and, and we, we would agree, you know, uh, we, we uh, cut back on our China exposure pretty significantly, Starting with um, you know the Jack Ma news back in November of 2020, and and then cut it even further going into um, you know the COVID pandemic and in, in early um, or sorry um, going into 2021. Um, so yeah, we've very little China exposure, and I think that's because of kind of the political situation that's going on, and we're not. You know we're we're not macro investors, but uh, when there's a geopolitical risk. Um, you know, that that can certainly slow 
uh, you know, the pace of innovation in, in China. You know, Japan may be the beneficiary out of that. You know, I mean, companies like uh, Tokyo Electron and Vantast and are caught up a little bit in it. But, you know, um, the LaserTech, the Disco, the Rome, the Omron. I mean, Japan still makes 17 percent of the world's semiconductors. I mean, they could be a, a, a beneficiary of all this, depending on um, how the wind blows. Yep, Very interesting. And as you said, maybe a, a conversation for the next podcast. Well, um, appreciate you joining the podcast, Steve. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. And uh, we're in violent agreement. So it was, a, it was a pleasure doing this with y'all. Thank you so much for having me. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.